and welcome. This is Mad Hat Economics recording from Cornell University. My name is Yu Dong. I'm a graduate student majoring in applied economics. Here is Elaine. Hello, hey. Today on our show, we invited our old friend, Professor David Just. Hello. And our new guest star, Professor Ravi Kambor. Hi there. <laughs> Professor Ravi Kambor is T.H. Lee Professor of World Affairs, International Professor of Applied Economics and Management, and Professor of Economics at Cornell University. Professor Ravi Kamber has also served on the staff of the World Bank as Chief Economist of the African Region of the World Bank and Principal Advisor to the Chief Economist of the World Bank. His main areas of interest are public economics and development economics. Last episode, we talked about American wages growth. A recent report from the World Economic Forum predicted that intelligent automation could eliminate 5 million jobs in developed countries by 2020. So today we will talk about how those technical changes impact social inequality and how should policies respond to those changes. So um, for the first um, could I ask a question to Professor um, Campbell? So, um, what, how uh, could you introduce what is the labor-saving technical change and what is the cons- consequences of that? Well, the basic idea behind labor-saving technical change is very straightforward. It is that uh, work that used to be done by humans uh, is now done by machines, mm-hmm. uh, or work that used to be done by basic labor by human beings is now done by skilled labor. Uh, skilled human beings who have more education or more knowledge and so on. So that's the basic nature of labor-saving technical change. And of course, we've always had that with us uh, historically. Uh, In fact, one of the reasons why we're wealthier today than we were 200 years ago is because there has been labor-saving technical change. But uh, this sort of change uh, doesn't come freely. It comes with some costs. And that's really what we we should be focusing on, I believe. We should be discussing that. Historically, you'll recall that in the in the Industrial Revolution, mm. uh, basic labor was displaced by machinery, by factories, uh, and so on. And in the long run, that led to an improvement in standard of living. Mm. But in the short run, and by short run, we could be talking about 20 years, 30 years, uh, in the short run, in fact, there was a, uh, there was a collapse in living standards of, uh, of, uh, of, of those people who were displaced by this technical progress. Mm. If, we, if we think about all the arguments that have been made about why Donald Trump was elected uh, president of the United States. And you remember that he lost the popular vote, but he won basically because he won in three or four key Midwestern states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan. And these are the places where, in fact, basic labor uh, has been displaced uh, by trade, by technology, and by other things. Uh, And I I think this is a very plausible analysis, although, of course, Uh, analysts are still working the data on this thing. Let me give you a third example, which is a few years ago, I was in in an Indian village, uh, actually staying in an Indian village and working uh, with a lady who worked in the fields uh, on on a tobacco crop. And there's a particular time in the the growing of a tobacco crop when you have to go and remove certain growths Mm -hmm. so that the rest of the plant can grow more, uh, more lushly. And this is really backbreaking work, and I did it for two days, so I know you, you have to bend down and pick these things up. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is really, uh, really very, very taxing work. Uh, but in fact, this lady was worried 
uh, that new forms of technology, mm. uh, chemical forms and mechanical forms were coming, which would take that job away from her. Mm. So there you go. Those are three examples, one from 200 years ago, <laughs> one from two years ago, uh, and one from India, which tells you the nature of the short-run costs uh, that labor-saving technical change could cause. And when I say short-run, I don't mean a few years. It, the, the cost could last over a few decades. So in... I know sort of in the in the history of U.S. agriculture, there's this idea of technical change leading to what some have called a, a treadmill, where, where you get improved technology, you, adapt, you know, adopt the new technology, it increases your yields, and when you have higher yields, prices go down, and, and so revenues go down, I, I, which has been thought of as sort of a constant problem, and you see these, you know, downward trends in agricultural prices in the U.S. at the same time. If we're talking about places where where people don't own the land or or they don't own the means of production, um, things could get actually a lot worse. Indeed, and uh, this is uh, actually one of the one of the questions that one of the great economists of our time, development economists of our time, Arthur Lewis, uh, asked the question. And he asked the question: Why is it that even though there has been technological change in agriculture, as you say, still agricultural workers uh, wear torn clothes and and live in shacks? And the answer is that the gains from those t that technical change were not resting with the workers. They were actually being transferred to the employers for, var for various reasons, for, for a number of different reasons. And so technical change, I think, essentially, uh, or the consequences of it, at the heart of it is a distributional question. Who yeah. gains and who loses? And that's why I think it's an important question. And the problem, I think, is more severe in the short run than in the, than in, than in the long run where you could argue that the pie will have grown sufficiently that you could, in fact, uh, redistribute it in some way or the other. Mm -hmm. But over a 20 to 30-year period, you have to, take, you have to take account of the fact that a lot of people may well end up worse off as a result. For the, yeah, because the artificial intelligence yeah, is also the labor-saving technical changes. So, because most people only see the opportunities because they, they bring a lot of convenience for us. Yeah. Well, when you say most people, you mean most people like us <laughs> see the opportunities. And, and, yeah. and, and, and indeed, it's true. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, this lady that in India that I was talking about, when she'd finished her day in the field, uh, she actually had access to a mobile phone. Uh, mm. And she could, she could uh, use that to check prices of things and so on and so forth. And this was a few years ago, and that has advanced a lot. So uh, farmers in many developing countries can now use the new technology yeah. to know where prices are and so on. And so they can, they can in some sense, negotiate better with the middleman who used to, who used to be very powerful in, in, mm. and still is in, in, in the villages. So there's no question that there are advantages on yeah. this side. Okay? So, uh, uh, but there are the disadvantages, and I think that's, that if we, if we somehow ignore those, or somehow think it's, it, all, it all goes out in the wash and everything balances out, that, I think, is when we're going to get into trouble. And that's when we get uh, political consequences uh, like Brexit in Britain uh, or, or other things in, in, in other countries. Yeah, so could you explain that the, your um, reports, like the three re um, responses to the... Sure, sure. So, so, uh, so I, think, I think it took a while. Uh, but I think people have now accepted that this is an issue, this is a problem, this is a, this is a, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a while, I think things got confused between, the, for example, in the US, the effects on employment as a result of trade and as a result of technology. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't clear which was which 
uh, and indeed both analytically and in a policy sense, people, were, people weren't sure how much was being caused by, by, by what. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it may, it may be true that, uh, say, for example, in the last, over the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, that a significant part of the, of the employment shock in the US, Midwest, for example, was because of trade, uh, because of imports uh, coming from other countries and so on. But at the same time as this trade thing is, uh, has been happening, technology has been moving as well. So the notion that somehow if we reverse the trade, we will get those jobs back, that's, that, that's a problem. Okay? That's, that's, that's what ignoring the technology, that's the mistake that you begin to make. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the, the current, current administration's, uh, US mm -hmm. administration's policy is to reverse the openness of trade, is to put on tariffs and so on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's, suppose, let's suppose that some of those jobs uh, uh, may come back. But that doesn't take into account the fact that there's this technological train which is moving, which is going to take those jobs away again. Yeah. So one way to put it is, the, is, the, is that the jobs may have gone away because of trade, but they're not going to come back because you reverse the trade, because mm -hmm. technology has already taken those jobs away. Mm -hmm. So I think people have now begun to, to realize yeah. that this is actually a very big force uh, in, in, in society. Of course, uh, in, in, in the West, in the US, and in the, uh, and in the UK, and so on, people have realized this now. But I would say that, it, uh, that a realization is also coming in developing countries, yeah. where you would typically think that this wouldn't be an issue, but actually it is, it is going to be an issue. One of the reasons why uh, steel is a problem in China yeah. uh, is because there are large numbers of people employed in steel mm. making in China. Uh, and of course, with technology, fewer and fewer people are going to be needed in that. Mm. And therefore, you're going to need to sell more and more steel uh, in order to keep those people employed. And that's what may, then may lead to a trade war, saying that, uh, because, mm. of, uh, bec because that steel will need to be sold somewhere. Okay? So steel is not just a problem in the US. Uh, it's actually, or, or rather, technological trends in steel are not mm. only a problem in the US, they're actually a problem in China as well. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I'll give you another example of this, which is that uh, we always used to say that, say, for Africa, uh, export-led growth was the answer yeah. and uh, exporting labor-intensive commodities was the answer. Okay? Because this was the model which uh, actually East Asia used. This was the model that, uh, that China used, that before that Japan used, before that uh, and, and Korea and so on and so forth. You remember all those, uh, you, may, you may recall all those black and white movies, uh, black and white vi uh, clips with uh, these factories making shoes in, uh, in Korea and Japan mm, and so on, yeah. uh, where, where there are hundreds of workers in, in, in the, in the, on the assembly lines, mm. all of them st uh, gluing on heels to the shoes as mm. the machine went past them. Now all that can be done with three people, three workers behind a glass door, okay, and so on. You remember all uh, the stuff about mining, you know, so the miners going down, uh, dig the coal, etc. Now all that can be done by three, three uh, technicians behind, behind a glass door managing all the big machines and mm. so on and so forth. So I think this is an issue, I would say, although it's manifesting itself, showing itself very sharply in, uh, uh, in, the, in the West, I think it's an issue that's coming around the corner so the notion that somehow when China moves up the uh, moves up the production uh, 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 production ladder mm -hmm. to produce more and more sophisticated items, somehow that that all those jobs are going to come to Africa, which has been Africa's hope. Uh, and while on one estimate, for example, it says that there are 80 million jobs which will be <laughs> which will be released uh, from China 
because China is now doing these things with using better technology. Now, that's a problem for China, but let's leave that to one side. The notion is that these 80 million jobs will come to Africa. Well, actually, by the time they come to Africa, there may only be 40 million of them because technology will have, technology yeah. will have changed. So one has to, when you project forward, you have to ask the question, what is the, uh, what is the, what is the new technology going to be to produce the same, the shoes, the, uh, the clothing, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, I think it, there is now growing realization that this is a problem. Yeah. So the question then is, what do we do about it? And uh, this is something that I've, that I've, that I've uh, written about. Um, and I've sort of talked about really, uh, in some sense, there being three types of responses that one can think mm -hmm. about. The, f the first one is, is the following, and, and think of the way that we think of the impact of labor-saving technical change is that it affects the demand side of the labor market. That what it does is that it reduces the demand for basic labor, increases the demand for skilled labor. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if the supply side stays fixed, then the demand side will have its full effect. Either the wage of the basic labor will go down mm. if the labor market is flexible, yeah. or it'll uh, or it'll create unemployment. Well, one of the two. Okay. So the U.S. story, because the U.S. U.S. labor markets are more flexible, is a, 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 a relative fall in the wage of basic labor. Mm. The European story, because European labor markets are less flexible, is a huge rise in unemployment. Uh, in, in, in Europe, for example, yeah. okay, and in Spain and so on. Uh, Spain, youth unemployment is in, in excess of 20%, 30%, and so on. It is, it's, it's enormous, an enormous problem. So the response to this demand side thing, one, one simple way to think of it, will be a supply side response. Yeah. You just simply create enough uh, skilled workers mm -hmm. to match this new, this new thing, and then that supply and demand will match, and then there mm -hmm. won't be a a, 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 an increase in the skill premium and therefore rising inequality and mm. so on. Yeah. So that's a natural response, and indeed it's a response that many economists would uh, would, would say. And I think I think that's a valid response. Mm -hmm. It's just that I don't think it can be it can be the full solution <laughs> uh, to this thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it definitely takes time to to get that to that re respond, but also it's just putting a more pressure to people, require people to constantly learning new technology, learning and getting the proper training to be able to be become the skilled worker. So I think you're really those two things are the same in a way the two sides of the same coin, which is mm -hmm. the way that I put it is the notion that somehow you're going to you're going to make a 50 year old uh, unemployed steel worker into a computer programmer overnight mm. is is fanciful okay mm. so the supply side argument is basically to do with the new generation and that's fine that's fair enough you know you can you can work on that and there are, there are, this is not the only reason why we should improve our education system but it is a, it is a main it is a, a leading reason why we should but we still have we will still have even if we get all that right and there are mm -hmm. there are plenty of problems in getting that right we will have the 40-year-old steelworker will be with us for the next 40 years <laughs> yeah. as, as somebody who cannot be employed by uh, industry, or at least not in the same way as before. Mm. So, uh, as I said, I'm not, I'm not saying we should... Uh, I think the supply-side argument is, is, a, is, is a reasonable argument. It's a, it's a good argument. Uh, but we should not view it as being a panacea, as being the, whole, the, ans the, the answer, the magic bullet mm. to everything, which is sometimes how economists talk Mm -hmm. which is sometimes how many policymakers talk where education is the answer. Yeah. So the, the second sort of response, mm. and these are not mutually exclusive, okay? You can do all, all, these, all these at the same time. Uh, the second type of response is the following, which is how do you, uh, if these processes go on, which they are going on, we will see market inequality increase, either because the wages of skilled labor 
uh, increase relative to the wages of basic labor mm -hmm. or because unemployment is created in basic labor, uh, whichever way around it goes, there'll be market inequality will increase. Uh, and if you did nothing else, then of course, final inequality would also increase. And, and we, we can argue that that is what's been happening in the US and the UK and yeah, so on. It seems pretty marked in the US. In, in, yeah. in the US, it's very, it's very marked indeed uh, in the thing. Since basically about the mid, uh, I would say about the, about the early 1980s, the number figures show that uh, US inequality has been, has been rising quite dramatically. Uh, this is market inequality, so to speak, pre-tax inequality. Uh, and of course, the fact that the tax system has become less progressive has actually only, only magnified that, that effect. So, and, and in fact, that's where, that's where the second response comes in. Say, okay, we, we simply let the market absorb these changes. The market outcome is what it is. And we then move to redistribute market incomes to... Uh, uh, to equalize final incomes. Okay. And that, again, I think is, 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 is a response which comes naturally to economists. And once, uh, again, the way that I put it sometimes to my students is the problem of the next 30 years is going to be how do you put your hands into the pockets of the computer programmers, get money out, and put that money into the pockets of the steel workers, of the unemployed steel workers. Okay, that's that's what's meant by redistributing market income because it's the is one one uh, part of the labor market which is doing very well, another part which is not doing very well. And if you can't address that problem by supply side things, then you're left with a problem. What do you do? Well, you have to redistribute in some way through using some tax mechanisms or something like that. And once you once you accept that that's an issue, once you accept that if you don't do that, inequality will go on increasing. Mm -hmm. And if you think that it shouldn't increase either because you have uh, certain ethical positions or because you're scared of social revolution if, if, that, if, that, if that is not done, social unrest, mm. uh, if that inequality goes on increasing in that way. Then really, th there are really on only two questions that then arise. If you, if you accept the basic point that you will have to take income from those who are gaining mm -hmm. and give it to those who are losing, then there are really two questions that arise. One is a straightforward economics question, which is, what is the most economically efficient way of doing this, of mm. doing this transfer? In other words, what is the most economically efficient tax and transfer regime? And that economists actually have a lot of lot to say about. Uh, our theory says a lot about it, uh, and also there's a lot of empirical work which says a lot about it. Okay? And just, just to give you a, a, a very uh, typical benchmark that economists use, is, 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 is so to speak, cash transfer. Mm. Okay? So the, e, the, the most efficient way of transferring $1,000 from person A mm -hmm. to person B is to transfer the $1,000, okay? Just take the $1,000 and give to the person, okay? Don't try, don't try to do it through prices or subsidizing mm -hmm. this, or whatever, because wh whenever you try to do it in an indirect way, that always has indirect costs to it. And that, that position economists are quite good at uh, holding, at, at analyzing, we understand it, uh, and we have data and so on, and, and we can work out, for example, what is the efficiency cost Mm -hmm. of transferring $1,000 in this roundabout <laughs> way. It could, for example, be it costs you $1,000 to redistribute $1,000, okay? That's, uh, that, uh, for example, uh, in terms of efficiency losses, economic efficiency losses. So that bit, I think, we're, we're relatively clear about uh, in, as analysts, uh, economists. Mm. The thing that we as economists are not very clear about is the social acceptability of different forms of redistribution. And this typically comes up, I mean, the, I gave you the example of a cash transfer, okay? Mm. Take, you know, the, 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 the steel worker is unemployed, uh, and suppose he has lost $1,000 as a result of becoming unemployed. 
The economist's answer is straightforward. Just give him a check for $1,000, OK? That is the most efficient way. Any other way is going to cost you more than $1,000. Mm -hmm. That's that. And I think that's a good instinct. That's a good economics instinct for economists to have. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we should always make that point. But the point is that simply giving $1,000, simply giving $1,000, may not be the socially acceptable way mm. of doing it because there's something to do about the dignity of work. Mm. The, the, the way that a transfer is made is very important as well in this, uh, yeah, generally. You, you could imagine, mm. I mean, first mm. off, you mm. could imagine mm. the, the you know, computer programmer being mm. sort of ticked at, at uh, you know, just $1,000 disappearing and, and, mm. and leaving. But also the unemployed steel worker just receiving the $1,000 check that might not be the way they want to receive it. Absolutely. It might not give them that, that value back. That, that, you, you're absolutely right. So the, the, the computer programmer leaving because of the tax, that bit economists are quite good at uh, analyzing, okay? So that the computer programmer will work less hard because there's more taxes or he may migrate yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So that way we have a handle on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and, uh, and our, our theories of optimal taxation and so on, uh, and our empirical analysis takes all that into account. So that bit we're sort of reasonably okay with. Is this other end that actually we're, we as economists are at sea uh, when, when it comes to that. And you're, you're, exa you're exactly right, David, that uh, 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 obviously the steelworker would rather have the $1,000 than not have the $1,000, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay? But, but that, will not, that will not necessarily do the job. That not necessarily do the job of putting the person back to where the where where he was he or she was before the loss uh, mm. uh, uh, of the job. Yeah, and that then poses certain dilemmas to uh, to the policymaker, to society, and so on. So if we accept that the steel factory that this <laughs> that the, that the steel worker used to work in, or the mine that the miner used to work in, mm. is is basic the jobs are basically gone because of technology. Okay, because now three people behind a behind a glass pane can do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, the, uh, it's all mechanized and all automated and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, do we then say that we keep that old factory going because that is the only way of restoring <laughs> dignity to this person? Uh, because then, indeed, it will cost you a thousand dollars to thousand dollars more to mm -hmm. transfer a thousand dollars okay that's true. Uh, and that is a, is a big dilemma uh, mm -hmm. for us and see and that's a, and that's highly context specific that is highly culture specific highly socially mm -hmm. context specific the economics part of it one can think of as being also context determined but but somewhat more general okay I mean mm -hmm. the effect of marginal tax rates on effort and so on and so forth one can think of as we understand as being somewhat more, somewhat more universal, mm. although I'm always one for saying local conditions matter even in economics. But here, in this case, different forms of transfer are socially acceptable in different ways in different countries, in different societies, and so on. Mm. So I'll give you an example of means testing. Means testing is where if a transfer is going to be made, you want to make sure that the person who's getting the transfer is not Bill Gates, okay? <laughs> is not, is that the person really is in need. Okay? Oh, yeah. And so what you do, you, you test the means, you means test. You test the means of the person uh, and you say, well, you have to show me your bank account. You have to show me whether you, ha whether you have three TV sets in your house. Mm -hmm. You have to show me what, what sort of couch you have and so on and so forth. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that can be quite a, in, uh, in some context, it can be quite a degrading thing mm -hmm. for somebody to come in and check your circumstance. But in some societies, that's, that's acceptable. <laughs> 
Uh, in other societies, it, it is not acceptable. Okay, so for example, in the UK and so on, means testing is a is a socially uh, the, there's tremendous social revulsion <laughs> against means testing. Against somebody coming into your home and saying, "Okay, you want a thousand dollars from us? I want to make sure that you need the thousand dollars. I'm going to check everything in your in your house." Okay, mm -hmm. so that's just, I'm just giving you those slight examples that that the social acceptability of this or that form of transfer is highly culture and context specific. Mm. And again, so putting these two together, there are really only two questions. There, there, there are two basic questions. One is the economic efficiency mm -hmm. of this redistribution and the social acceptability of this redistribution. Mm. And, I, and I think that that is the agenda for the next uh, 20 to 30 years mm -hmm. because that's the world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And it's the intersection between the two <laughs> Which is where, uh, which is going to be very, very small, possibly, but it's it's our it's our task as analysts to discover that intersection between the two. What is the intersection between the most efficient and the most socially uh, uh, acceptable? Mm. Uh, and if and if we don't find something, then what is the alternative? Yeah. That I think is a challenging agenda for us analysts to provide input to policymakers who are actually who are actually grappling with this. They're trying out different things and so on on the ground. Uh, some some uh, with greater success than others. I, I got to say, in the U.S., there's really been this tremendous. I, I don't know if I want to temptation or 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 push. Whenever you're making that transfer to to somebody, first off, you're means testing it, but but second off, you're trying to attach strings to it to get them to behave in a certain way to address. Issues, right? I mean, it, we've seen this most recently with food stamps, mm. uh, where, where, or, or what's called SNAP now. Mm. There's a real push now that SNAP isn't just about giving people money for food; it's about giving people money for food and making sure they buy the right food. Yes. <laughs> yes. In, in Latin America and, and elsewhere, they're called conditional cash transfers. Yes. Uh, mm. uh, and uh, that's uh, and there's been, there's a there's a big sort of discussion of this in the Latin American context, and. Uh, it's argued that in some ways it's been very successful in achieving its goals, uh, say, uh, uh, but in other ways it has not. You know, it has raised questions and so on. So I think that. So let me then uh, turn then to the third, uh, the third sort of canonical response, the third mm -hmm. broad set of responses. And this third one we don't talk about as much. The first two, as I've, as I've suggested, certainly as economists we talk about a lot, mm -hmm. uh, and also as a society we talk about a lot. But the third one is that, you know, we take technical change as being exogenous. We take it as being given. It is, uh, as an old-fashioned term used to say, manna from heaven. You know, it just falls. <laughs> it just falls on us. And we accept it's exogenous, and that's it. Okay? It, mm. we, all, all, we have, all we can do is to deal with the consequences of it, both the benefits and the costs of it and so on. But actually, again, uh, a great economist like Kenneth Arrow, who passed away, uh, who passed away uh, last year, uh, a Nobel Prize winning economist, yeah. uh, he argued that actually uh, technical progress is endogenous, mm. that actually firms decide, individuals decide on how much to invest in uh, R&D and what yeah. type of investment to make and so on and so forth. And that strain of economic literature led to the proposition that because of the nature of technical change, because of the nature of investment and so on, because of the externalities that are involved, the typically investment in, uh, in, in R&D would not be efficient, would, would not have the economically efficient level. Oh. That in fact, there may be a case for government intervening to bolster uh, R&D 
And indeed, as we know, one of the most successful uh, examples of government investment uh, in, in uh, uh, technical change was in fact the internet, which is a, which is a pure outcome of the government's investment uh, in, uh, uh, in various, at that time, various defense-related programs. But it wasn't, yeah. it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't some company in Silicon Valley which, which uh, did this thing. It was actually the public sector which, which developed this thing. So uh, another great economist, uh, Tony Atkinson, who also passed away last year, one of the great thinkers and one of the great writers on inequality, he wrote a book uh, last year, uh, uh, two years ago, just before he died, called Inequality, What Can Be Done? And he talked about these two things that I've talked about, but he also talked about the third thing, which is why should we take the nature of technical change as given, as somehow being thrown at us from? Why shouldn't we ourselves try to change that nature of technical change? Okay. Is that proposing a faster pace, like for, for more, like just ask for more technology well, improvement? Uh, well, different types of technology improvement. That's the point. Okay. So, mm -hmm. so this technical change is labor saving. Mm -hmm. why, why not? Why, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the argument before this was that, in fact, the private sector is, is investing too little in technical change. Oh. Yeah. And therefore, the government should step in and, and help subsidize or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Now the argument might be, and this is something that economists should look at, that actually the private sector is investing in the wrong type of technical change. Along the spectrum of labor saving to labor using, mm -hmm. if, you, if you want to uh, lay it out like that, that in fact the private sector may be doing too much in terms of labor saving technical change and not enough in terms of labor using technical change mm -hmm. because of its own uh, uh, imperatives, okay, and there, there are network effects. There are all sorts of things, etc. Once you get into that, once you get into that spiral, it just goes on. It's not worthwhile any single firm saying, "No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different," <laughs> which is why it's a, it's, it's a public sector issue. Which is why there may be an argument for for intervening and so on. Now, there, I think economists have done very little work in that in that in that area. Although, as I said, there's a tradition going back to Arrow of saying that we should intervene in te in technical change processes. Yeah. But all of that has been from the efficiency point of view, not from the distribution point of view. So this was this would be my third area, and that that clearly that's where economists haven't done very much. So I can't mm -hmm. I can't give you any any neat results and, and so on in that way. But I think it's an, it's an important response that should be here. Yeah. So you should be looking for technologies really that increase the value of labor, not decrease the the need for it. Right. Uh, 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 so even even defining what we mean by <laughs> uh, a good technical change in this thing is a, is itself an open question. It's a new, it's, yeah. a, it's a new area. Okay, it's a new research area. It's a new conceptual area, I would say, and that's because bec that's because the pace of labor using technical change has been so high in the last 25, 30 years that we now have the problem, the issue of unemployed steel workers, both in the U.S. and in China, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So looking forward, I mean that. Uh, looking forward, how can we alter the pattern? That won't affect, that won't solve our problem now. Yeah. Uh, for that, we need the first two uh, things. Mm -hmm. So that's the. So let me then turn to my final point about how can what your experts in uh, behavioral economics uh, help in this help in this thing? And clearly, of the, of all of these things, I think economists are relatively good at. Most of those things, mm -hmm. except for that thing about social acceptability mm -hmm. of different forms of transfer. Okay, uh, economists really don't have a, have a, as I said. The only thing they know about is is that cash transfers are are, <laughs> are good, are good, and high marginal tax rates are bad. Mm -hmm. And then we balance out 
the equity efficiency trade-off and so on. And we're, we're very good at that. And, 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 and very good that we're very good at that, that sort of stuff. <laughs> but whether social, whether social acceptability of different forms of, what, what the social acceptability is of different forms of transfer, this is something that we have, we have insights on from, from other social sciences like sociology and, uh, and so on. But we really need to uh, uh, come back, I think, to. So again, as I said, you're the experts in this area, but I think, I think you could, for example, do some of your lab-based uh, experiments mm -hmm. along ask, uh, even starting with asking questions uh, and, then, and then making it more and more sophisticated, yeah. asking about this form of uh, receiving this form of a transfer versus that form of a transfer versus that form of a transfer. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? There, there's a, mm -hmm. a literature that developed about, uh, about fairness mm -hmm. in, a, in yeah. business transactions and, and I, it's really, I think it was Thaler who, who put uh, some of this originally together, looking at you know, hypothetical questions. You know, you have a huge snowstorm, um, and the local hardware store yes. triples the price of, of snow shovels. Um, is that fair or not? Right. But it, really, the same sorts of things could be applied to tax and redistribution systems. Is, is this fair when they do this? Yes. Right. And I, and I, I would guess. There'd be a whole lot of interesting things to look at in terms of how things pop up historically, right? Does the computer programmer recognize that uh, that their job might have come at the expense of the the steel worker, right? I probably not. Well, so uh, yeah, and 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 it may be it may be too much to expect uh, the computer programmer to do that, but it would be worth <laughs> it would be worth testing that. Yeah. But certainly, one should make make them aware. <laughs> First of all, we should make them aware of it. But secondly, I suspect that what's going what's gonna to make them more amenable to handing over the money uh, so that it can be redistributed is not necessarily, is perhaps their sense of ethical whatever and so on. But the fact that the fact that this is that the social stability, uh, that the social instability of this, uh, of this degree of inequality uh, is not good for them. Okay? Yeah. Mm. In the famous phrase, you know, <laughs> If some of us uh, go to sleep hungry, uh, others will not sleep at all. Uh, and it's that spark, it's that, it's that potential for something uh, blowing up, uh, which I suspect eventually uh, will get the computer programs to say, OK, here, take this money and, and, uh, and whatever. And actually, that is also, I think, uh, testable and examinable. Oh, in yeah. your in your lab type uh, lab type setting, okay. so I would say that for for these sorts of reasons, the behavioral economics perspective is actually quite important, and I think quite fruitful uh, in in these sorts of in these sorts of distributional uh, questions, including in, in the in the question of what's the response to labor saving technical change. Do you think the technological revolution is the same with the industrial revolution in the last era? Yeah. So uh, again, th this is a very, very uh, interesting set of questions. So uh, I, I started off by saying that in the Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, in the first Industrial Revolution, we had the displacement of artisanal uh, jobs, like people who used to do weaving and so on. They were replaced by uh, factories, etc. Then in the second Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, around the time of the internal combustion engine and so on and so forth, we had all those people who used to uh, uh, who used to drive horses and uh, make horse carriages and so on? They were put out of for whatever. Uh, all those people who used to uh, do go and catch whales so that the, uh, the the whale fat could be turned into candle wax and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. 
all that disappeared with the coming of the electric uh, light bulb and so on and so forth. So this is a continual process. It's not, a, it's not something uh, that somehow is new. It's actually not even clear that, that, the, that the pace of labor-saving technical change is, is particularly fast now compared to um. 30, 40 years ago. That's something that economists and analysts have to actually do some hard, hard work <laughs> on. But the point, the, point is, the point is, however, our period. Uh, this is the problem that we have to deal with yeah. now. Of course, it was dealt with in the past. It was dealt with in the past. Uh, Karl Marx uh, uh, emerged in the 1840s. Uh, we had the Russian Revolution in the, in the 1917, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Okay? So, so each generation, each uh, uh, epoch of history has to deal with it in, t in its own terms. And uh, the question for, for, for uh, analysts is how will we deal with it in our epoch, uh, given where we are, given how democratic institutions have moved, etc., which of course they weren't there uh, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. So I think that just brings us to a nice ending point. Thank you, Professor Ravi Kambor, for sharing so amazing and so amazing opinions. And thank you, Professor Just. All right, folks, here comes to the end. We are so glad you are enjoying our podcast, Manhattan Economics. Please share or contact us. You can always find more from our website or Twitter, or just simply email us, madhateconn at gmail.com. We are looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs>